you'll find this if you're using one of the church Bibles on page 1068, 1068. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, since the said Mr. David Robertson is getting rid of his copies of the books written by the said Sinclair Ferguson, it would be extremely embarrassing to me if any of them were left. Uh, it's one thing for your minister to get rid of your books. It's another thing for nobody to want them. So, um, be a good Samaritan. We are uh, studying in John's gospel, not the whole of it, but uh, a selection of passages that have time or date markers attached to them, uh, which many passages in John's gospel have. It's, uh, it's one of the striking features of John's gospel that he's very interested in the feasts that Jesus attended, and he's also interested in the times of day uh, when things happened or the number of years that are markers in an event, and it's years in the case of John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I've no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath so, the Jews, in this context, this means probably the Pharisees, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man, I think in the New International Version, it's fellow. Who is this? Who is this fellow? Demeaning him. Who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, 
and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Unusual proportion of us in St. Peter's work in the field of medicine as doctors, nurses, research scientists, uh, dentists. And I wonder how many of you who work in that field have ever said to a patient, do you want to get better? I can imagine uh, dentists might say that, do you want to keep your teeth? I can imagine that uh, a GP might say to somebody who can hardly get through the door, do you want to get better? It would, however, I think be a little unusual to say to somebody who had been paralyzed for 38 years, do you want to get well? But that's what the opening verses of John chapter 5 tell us. This man who is at the pool of Bethesda, where there were certain uh, superstitions that uh, from time to time something would happen to the water, and the first man in or woman in uh, might get healed. And so needy people came from all around the country, a little like making the pilgrimage to Lourdes in the hope that they would be healed. And uh, Jesus, as he goes through Jerusalem at the feast, he comes to this pretty downtrodden part of town. This isn't a romantic scene, uh, a pool with paralyzed and crippled and sick and ailing. And somehow he understands that this man has been paralyzed for uh, 
almost 40 years. And he approaches him and asks him if he really wants to get better. The man tells him what the problem is or makes his excuse. And then with one word, just as this happens in the preaching of the gospel, the word of Jesus enables this disabled individual to do what Jesus tells him. Get up, roll up your bed, and get out of here. And the man is apparently so startled, he does exactly what Jesus says, rolls up his mattress, and uh, walks away. And uh, that's almost where John loses interest in him. He will appear again, but this story isn't really about the man who was healed. It's about Jesus and what happened because He healed the man. And so, with a kind of literary brilliance, it's just as we see the man walking away, wandering into the streets in Jerusalem, eventually going to the temple. Did he still have his mattress under his arm? One wonders, John tells us. And this happened on the Sabbath. And that's his introduction to the real message of this passage, because the very first thing that he goes on to tell us is something about the controversy that Jesus causes. Uh, this is why we hear about these Jews who, who immediately are on the case of this man, and the storm breaks out around Jesus. And it, it's, a, it's an extraordinary scene. Here is a man who's been at this pool, perhaps off and on over the years. He's been lame or crippled 38 years. He's, he's presumably had to beg. Jerusalem isn't all that big a city. And these Pharisees spot this man. He is the only man, you can be absolutely sure, he's the only man walking on the Sabbath day with a mattress under his arm. And they leap upon him. They surround him. They collar him. And they accuse him of breaking the Sabbath commandment. It is the Sabbath, they say, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, we've seen that not all Pharisees were tainted with the same brush. But these were the Pharisees who kept in their hip pocket the reader's guide to the 39 ways it's possible to break the Sabbath. And these uh, rabbis had constructed an entire uh, theology on top of the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment said, don't work on the Sabbath day. And so, these rabbinical theologians were interested in, well, what does work mean? And they had constructed all kinds of categories of work, 39 of them. And you can tell a great deal about these particular people from what happens here. You remember how maybe not the same people? Remember when Jesus and the disciples in Mark 2 are walking through the fields, and the disciples are doing what you do when you walk through the fields. They're instinctively reaching out, and they're getting some corn, and they're munching away. And then suddenly, out of the cornfields, leap this bundle of Pharisees. Go 
got you, they say, got you, breaking the Sabbath, working on the Sabbath, harvesting on the Sabbath. And it tells you all about their attitude to the Sabbath. Remember how Isaiah said in his day in chapter 58, dear ones, what God wants you to do is call the Sabbath a delight. He's given it to you to give you release from the daily grind. He's given it to you for your good and for His pleasure. He's given it to you because He created you to work in a certain way and to rest in a certain way. But these men find their delight not so much in resting on the Sabbath, but in working very hard to make sure that nobody's carrying their mattress on the Sabbath. And, you know, it might have been all right if the guy had been a sales representative for Sealy, you know, and he was, he was flogging mattresses to these poor people. See what's so interesting? See how it's, it's so possible to think that you see and to be completely blind. Um, to go through life looking at an optical illusion, because all they see here is a Sabbath breaker. And of course, those laws, those regulations about breaking the Sabbath, they weren't in the Bible at all. This man wasn't breaking the Sabbath at all. There was, there was nothing in the Old Testament Scriptures that would even suggest that this man was breaking the Sabbath. But that's all they saw. And even when it dawned on them that this man had actually been healed. Now, you could, you could maybe forgive people for, for saying, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't recognize you. You're so changed. Well, you would be changed if you'd been paralyzed 38 years and were now walking around with your bed under your arm. They don't do that at all. They're not even interested in the man who healed him. They're only interested in who is this fellow who told you to pick up your bed and walk, and we'll go after him too. And you, you see what they're missing? Actually, what they're missing is Jesus. They're deeply religious people. They are, they are so resolutely committed to living a good life that they've, they've added as many possible bits and pieces of practical know how to do it around keeping God's commandments, that they're absolutely, utterly committed to living a life that will, they think, please God. And they're like the Pharisee in, in Luke chapter 9, that they'll be able to say, Lord, I thank you that you've, you've helped me to make up these commandments. I thank you've helped me to keep them. And they'll also say, and I thank you that I've kept them not like this fellow. And the thing they can't see is who Jesus really is. I mean, from one point of view, their, their response is laughable. Except with, with people like this, you daren't laugh because you'll just get into more trouble. There's another man Jesus heals a couple of chapters later on, and, and he, he begins to, to toy with them, and he just gets into more trouble. He says, what, you're just ridiculous. Don't you see yourself? You ever read your Robert Burns? 
Would to God the gift it gave us to see ourselves as God sees us, Jesus sees us. Possible to be so profoundly religious that you can't actually see Jesus. And Jesus has healed this man on the Sabbath day. He does a number of healings on the Sabbath day, apparently quite deliberately, in order to bring out what is really in the hearts of these people. And what's so tragic is this, that Jesus has just done for this man what their book of rules could never do. Indeed, Jesus has just done for this man what God's own law wasn't designed to do, nor did it have the power to do. We've already hinted in, in, I think, when we were looking at John chapter 2, that the, the miracles in John's gospel are not so much seen as works of amazing power, but as signs of who Jesus really is. He is the one who has come to do for people what all their efforts to keep the law can never do for them. Remember how Paul puts it so succinctly, that in sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, the word became flesh, John has told us. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh in order that what the law required might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus has just beautifully illustrated the gospel, and He's done it so appropriately on the Sabbath day. And uh, those who have engaged in controversy with Him, they're not able to see it. And that's the real issue, isn't it? Always, that's the real issue. That's the, that's the starting place, isn't it, in the Christian faith. Do you see who Jesus really is, and do you see what Jesus is able to do? That's why sometimes when non-Christians see what Jesus has done in Christians' lives, they are bound to ask the question, who did this? to you. But then John moves on from the controversy that Jesus has caused to the identity that Jesus claims. The NIV perhaps captures the mood of these Pharisees. Who is this fellow who said to you, take up your bed and walk? How dare he? And Jesus answers the question, doesn't he? Verse 17 for example, he says, this is who I am. I am someone whose father is working until now, and I am working too. Now, no question that they would have understood what he was saying. God created the world, and then he rested. But in his rest, he kept on working, sustaining the world, providing for his children. And Jesus is saying, my father is still working. And so I his son, I'm still working too. And you see, immediately, immediately they understood what he was saying. It was crystal clear to them what Jesus was saying. 
they were enraged by him, uh, verse 18, not only because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And there are two things emerge in the… It, it, actually, it ceases to be a conversation at this point. Uh, Jesus speaks now with supreme authority. And he points out two things. First, he points out the uniqueness of his relationship with the Heavenly Father. And he uses this illustration, perhaps he's even thinking about what happened to carpenter shop when he was a boy. What happened in those, how did you learn? I mean, how do we learn to function basically by osmosis, don't we? We, we watched how our parents did things if we had loving parents and we we kind of picked it up. And Jesus is saying, you know, it's almost as though he's saying, you know, I don't know about you people, but I, my dad uh, was a carpenter, and I used to go into the carpenter shop, and he would show me what he was doing. And then he would say, now you do it, Jesus. And he's saying, that's the relationship I have with the Heavenly Father. He shows me everything, and uh, he sent me into the world to to do in this world the kind of things that he does, as it were, in the, the vast cosmos of reality. And he's keeping it going. And his providence is working things together for good, and he's acting in people's lives. And so, I've learned this from my father. Incidentally, he's really saying, I've learned this from my father who gave you that commandment in the first place. Don't you think he knows what the commandment means? And don't you think his son knows what the commandment means? Because his son watched how his father lived in this way. But uh, that's the uniqueness of Jesus. And it, it's just amazing, isn't it, that, that anyone would think that they believed things about Jesus, but, but didn't think He was the only way to the Father. Remember, He says that later on, John 14, 6, I'm the only way to the Father. Of course, He's the only way to the Father. If you really want to know somebody's Father, what do you do? You, you go to the Son and you say, would you introduce me to your Father? That's why Jesus is so unique. That's why Jesus himself claims to be the only way of salvation because he's the only one who actually knows the Father. You don't know the Father by nature. You might think we're all Jock Tamson's bairns, but you don't come to him as your loving heavenly Father because you believe we're all Jock Tamson's bairns. And it's not only the uniqueness of his relationship to the Father that Jesus claims, it's his unique role in relationship to us. And he goes on to speak about this. His, for example, his ability in, in verse 24 to give us eternal life right here and now in the present day. I'll give you eternal life right now. His ability to raise us up in the last day and to make that eternal life last forever. And then, of course, notice especially what he says in verse 22, and then he repeats it in verse 
27. Not only his role in giving us eternal life and in giving us resurrection life, but his role in the judgment that determines how we spend eternity. The Father has placed in the hands of his Son all judgment. And you see what he's doing now. Um, This is Jesus, the gracious one, inviting these Jews, these Pharisees to to trust him. But he's, he's also saying, I am in dead earnest about this. Your eternal destiny depends on how you respond to me. Now, we don't hear that too often these days when the exclusive claims of Jesus are minimized, do we? It it kind of toned down and toned down in the church. I remember hearing that a member of the royal family had asked one of the Episcopalian chaplains if it was true there was a hell. And he said, well, the formularies of the church say so, and Jesus taught so, and the Bible seems to say so, and uh, our 39 articles suggest so. And the response he got was, then why in the name of God will you not tell us? And Jesus tells them, how you respond to me, how you respond to me will determine your eternal destiny. It's that serious. You know, you, you ought to be able to work that out for yourself. When you listen to Jesus cry on the cross, my God, I am forsaken, why? And you know that the answer to that is because he's dying in your place. My friends, it's not possible to even contemplate seriously going into the presence of God and saying to him, well, I knew all that, but I found another way. found another way here. Do you not think that he will say to you, do you imagine for a moment that I would have sent my son to the cross in order to bring sinners salvation if there was a way around, if there was an easy way, if you could make up your own way, if you could come your own way to me? And so, John wants to tell us about the controversy that Jesus caused, and he wants to emphasize the identity that Jesus claimed, and he also wants to show us the authority that Jesus expresses, and this takes up the rest of the chapter, because Jesus Jesus tells them up front, I understand that according to God's law, Deuteronomy chapter 19, one witness is not enough. So, my witness to myself would not pass muster in a court of law, but I'm not the only witness. He says, look at what my Father is doing through me in these miracles. Remember the testimony that John the Baptist gave to me. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he says, somewhere alongside that little booklet of 39 ways you can break the Sabbath, your synagogue has got a a copy of the Scriptures, and they testify to me. And these marvelous words in 5, 39 and 40, 
You search the Scriptures, which they were doing. They were reading their Bibles faithfully. You search the Scriptures, but you will not come to me to have eternal life. Actually, those are the first words that ever walked off the page of the Bible and spoke to me. I'd been reading the Bible as a youngster for five years. And I thought that was how you became a Christian. And you said your little prayers. You tried to be decent. You gave up your seat and buses to old ladies or gentlemen my age. And you opened doors and that was how you got to heaven. I used to think as a youngster that the queen had it easy. There were too many courtiers around her for her to have much opportunity to sin. I didn't realize I was a sinner and needed a savior. And I was exactly in this position. I might not have had 39 ways to break the Sabbath, but uh, I had my little rules to get me to heaven. And you don't need to be a 10-year-old boy to think that's Christianity. And then these words, you've been reading the Bible, you've been hearing the Bible, you've been listening to sermons, you've known it all from your childhood upwards, but you have never come to me to find life. You've never come to me to find life. so amazing, so wonderful. And it's so revealing as well. You know, just near the end of this passage, Jesus says, I I know you. And we've seen this before. We've seen this before in John's gospel. He knows you. Perhaps he's even speaking to you. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you will find eternal life, and they do witness and testify to me, but don't you see me, the living Savior, and come to me in order that you may have eternal life. Now, this is the one who stood before the paralyzed man, and asked this, I think, quite strange question. Do you really want to be made well? Some of you have had patience and you've asked that question because you think it's obvious people want to get made well, but some people are sick so long, they're too weary to get better. Their sickness has has drawn all the energy out of them, and some people are spiritually in the same position. They hear the voice of Jesus, but they're too tired now. All the energy has been drained from them. Or perhaps they're too frightened of what in one way or another would be the cost of hearing His voice and coming and trusting Him. And you could be any age. You could be somebody who, as some of us have met from from every outward point of view, has seemed to other people to be a Christian. I've never forgotten an elderly lady telling me, everybody here thinks I've been a Christian for decades. And I only came to Jesus in the last couple of years. And... uh, You see, unlike this man, your paralysis is not obvious to people. 
There wouldn't be something if there was somebody in the congregation who for exactly 38 years, maybe you're 38, or maybe it was 38 years ago, and all through these years you've been paralyzed and you've never come to Jesus. But now you see this is, this is what happens through his word. He speaks his word. And the deaf hear his voice, and the lame walk, and we, we find ourselves coming to him and trusting him, loving him and knowing him. We don't know what happened. We don't know what this man's name was. We don't know whether he became a Christian or not. Why not? Because actually what John is interested in when he writes the gospel is not what happened years ago, but what's going to happen to people who read his gospel. He's told us this story, and he tells us other stories and signs, and he says, I've selected these in order to show you Jesus and to call you to come and trust in Him so that He will be your Savior too. He makes it very explicit. That's why he's written the gospel. And so, that's the story of uh, the paralyzed man. 38 years. And it may be your story too. 38 years, 38 months, 38 weeks makes no difference. But when you hear the voice of Jesus, like all of us, when you hear the voice of Jesus saying, come to me and now walk by my grace in your way, we're we can be paralyzed by the cost, especially if we're younger. Paralyzed by the thought of the changes. Paralyzed by the fear. Some of you read George MacDonald's fairy tales. C.S. Lewis says he never wrote a book without quoting George MacDonald. And um, George MacDonald, who was not a very good theologian, but was a man with an extraordinary imagination, has a fairy uh, story called The Golden Key. And one of the characters, as this character seeks a blessed destiny, this girl called Tingle, I think, she ends up in the cave of the old man of the earth and wants to know the way to blessedness in the future. And he he pulls up a stone in the cave and he, he says, it's down there. And Tingle looks down there and she says, there are no stairs. And the old man of the earth says, no, there are no stairs. You have to throw yourself in. And it's really the same with Jesus. You can be led all the way to see him. But now in faith, you need to throw yourself into his arms. You don't think he'll let you fall, do you? He's never let anyone fall. And he tells us in John's gospel that he's never turned away anyone who has come to him. So have you come to him? Everybody thinks you're a Christian. Perhaps you even have thought you're a Christian. But you've never come to Jesus to have life. Well, come to him.
and find life. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful Savior. Thank you for His grace. Thank you for the firmness of His spine uh, with these false teachers. Thank you for the way in which He speaks to us through His Word still and stands before us so that we know He is with us and we know that He is speaking to us. We can be very frightened of what the consequences might be, the trouble it might cause, the pain, the cost, the changes. But Lord, you've taught us that there is only one way. And so we pray that you would help us by your grace today to throw ourselves in. Do this, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.